Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Strange State. I'm your host, Liz Higgins, and happy Valentine's Day weekend. I love you guys so much, and I appreciate your support so far. So I'm going to jump right into this week's case because it is a doozy and it is a fascinating one. So I hope you like it. Love has a long, sordid history. It has started revolutions. It has changed rules and doctrines. It has also started feuds and even wars, which is exactly what it did in today's case. Born on Christmas Eve of 1946, Susie Newsom was born into a family of prominence in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Even her name was something she had to live up to. She was named after Susie Sharp, the first woman in the state of North Carolina to be elected as Chief Justice. Known in her family as Susie Q, she quickly had her dad wrapped around her finger and would get anything she wanted at the drop of a hat. Her nickname was given to differentiate her between her aunt, Susie Sharp, so Susie Q, very cute. She was known to all as a prim and proper girl, always dressing modestly, keeping in mind her place as a debutante in the Southern society. Throughout her life, her image was the most important thing to her. In public, she was a beautiful Southern belle, but behind closed doors, she was known to be somewhat of a brat. If she didn't get what she wanted from her family or friends, she would throw a famous temper tantrum until the offending party relented. Her mother had taken to throwing ice-cold water on her as the only way to stop one of her famous fits. This would become a normal occurrence for Susie. When she went away to college, her studies were very important to her, as was her social life. She was named fraternity's sweetheart and beloved by all on campus. It was during that look for a social life at Wake Forest that she met Tom Lynch, a basketball player that was as charming as he was handsome. He was an ideal match for Susie. He had good looks, he played sports, and he had also come from Southern money. They fell for one another fast and hard. Tom quickly took her home to meet his mama. Dolores Lynch and Susie did not always see eye to eye, but Tom always took Susie's side. When they settled down together and married in 1970, they were excited about the life and future they had before them. Soon, Susie was pregnant with their first child, and little John Lynch was born. He was the apple of his father's eye. Then, when little Jim came along not a year later, Tom became just as devoted to him as well. He was a doting father and loved his children more than himself, and even more than Susie. The young family moved to New Mexico so that Tom could start his dentistry practice. Susie hated New Mexico. Here, she was a nobody. There were no debutante balls or southern social seasons. She was bored and felt unimportant, a little fish in a big ocean compared to the small towns that she had come from, where the people would fawn over her and live off of her every move. Because of her boredom, Susie's true self would start to show. With no outlet and no appearance to keep up, if she didn't get her way, she would throw a true hissy fit. Flying into a sort of a rage, she would rage and rage until Tom would relent, giving her whatever she wanted. This cycle would continue for the rest of their marriage, until Tom had finally had enough. The fighting started, and Tom stopped giving in. Susie left him in September of 1979 under the guise of returning home 
to deal with a sick grandfather. She never returned. She went to North Carolina, moving with her parents and the boys in tow. When she got back home to Winston-Salem, she told anyone that would listen that Tom had left her and that she was absolutely lost without him. Growing bored at home, she took the boys and went to live in China to teach English for a year but thought the country was dirty and quickly changed her mind. When she returned home, her family had noticed a change in her personality. Her short fuse was directed at everyone, including her boys. And when she wasn't angry, she was just sad. Her family noted that she wouldn't eat or drink and would just sit quietly staring at the wall. Growing concerned, her family decided she needed to see a doctor and fast. And it just so happened that they had a pretty prominent one in the family. Dr. Frederick Klinner Sr. was Susie's uncle, married to her mother's sister, Annie Sharp Klinner. Dr. Klinner was renowned for his use of megavitamin therapy on his patients. Megavitamin therapy, according to Wikipedia, the trusted resource, is the use of large doses of vitamins, often many times greater than the recommended dietary allowance, in the attempt to prevent or treat diseases. So, you know, we all take our multivitamin every day, or you might take a supplement of vitamin D or vitamin C, biotin, any of those vitamins. So this is using an extreme dose, sometimes five to 10 times the recommended dose in order to fight disease as opposed to using other actual treatments. Klenner Sr. graduated from Duke University in 1936 and moved to Reedsville, North Carolina to join a private practice. He gained notoriety after the birth and subsequent survival of the Fultz sisters, a set of African-American quadruplets born in 1946 against all odds. Dr. Klinner was their doctor and claimed that it was the large amounts of vitamin C he gave them as infants as the reason they survived into adulthood. Ironically, all four of the sisters eventually died of breast cancer at different stages in their life, and they attributed getting breast cancer to shots they had when they were younger. Just fun fact to throw out there. On July the 11th of 1952, his son Frederick Robert Fritz Klenner Jr. was born, the youngest of three. Dr. Klenner expected a lot of his young son. The doctor passed on his beliefs to him that included his love of guns and other weapons. He reveled in the teachings of Hitler, the KKK, and the Catholic Church. All Fritz wanted to do was make his father proud of him, and he believed the only way to do so was to emulate him. During high school, he joined the Demolay International, a group open to men aged 12 to 21 that was also known as the Young Masons of America used as a group that young men could join before they were old enough to join the actual Freemason organization. At the age of 16, though he was whisked away to a private school in Georgia known as the Woodward Academy so that he wouldn't be subject to racial integration at his public high school, Dr. Klinner had a very, very deep racism about him, and that would affect him later on in life. Fritz Klinner was smart, and was determined to follow in his father's footsteps. He graduated from the private school, ninth out of 138 students in his class. 
In the fall of 1970, he entered into higher education at the University of Mississippi and studied medicine there for four years. In his final semester, though, during a summer session, he dropped out instead of graduating. Some believe that Fritz was actually struggling to maintain his grades. Again, small fish in a big ocean kind of mentality. He was unable to continue at his school. His father knew none of this, though, welcoming into his practice with open arms when he returned from school, assisting his father with no license for three years. In 1977, he supposedly, air quotes, became enrolled in Duke Medical School and became engaged to a woman named Ruth Dupree. But he wasn't very committed to Ruth. The engagement was called off when he was diagnosed air quotes, with stomach cancer by his father and began to undergo the, air quotes, vitamin treatments. After a year of treatments, he miraculously recovered and married Ruth on December 23, 1978. Susie, at the time, was caught in a custody battle for the ages. Tom Lynch was still a devoted father and wanted to see his sons often, but Susie made it nearly impossible. She required him to pay for plane tickets for herself and the boys to New Mexico and back so that she could drop them off herself. It would only be for one month out of the year during the kids' summer vacation from school and maybe some holidays. Tom Lynch was concerned about his boys' well-being. While Susie and Tom were together, she was known to believe very heavily in corporal punishment. It was even rumored that she put one of the boys in the hospital. In 1980, Susie visited the family doctor and was reintroduced to her first cousin, Fritz Klinner. They hadn't spent much time together since they were very young, and oddly, Susie became enamored with the young doctor. He ended up diagnosing her with multiple sclerosis, and his father backed up his diagnosis and started to prescribe her heavy doses of vitamin C which would make her have more energy and feel closer to her old self, which we all know vitamin C can do, but it is a temporary feeling. It's hard to say whether it was the vitamins or her growing relationship with the young Dr. Fritz that was making her feel her old self. Fritz was exciting and different telling her stories about his time as a green beret in Vietnam and his undercover work with the CIA all of these stories were in Fritz's imagination, but Susie believed every word and soon became smitten. Yes, I said smitten with her first cousin. Unfortunately, that isn't the strangest or saddest part of this story. They began spending every free minute they had together, and the boys started calling him Papa. He would take them camping and seemed to genuinely care for the boys. The families became concerned with the relationship between the two, and they tried to ignore it, but that became pretty impossible when Fritz moved into Susie's apartment with her and her boys. Tom was also moving on, although not quite as exciting as Susie's incestuous relationship, he fell in love with a woman named Kathy, and she loved the boys as much as he did. When the boys did get to come visit, they would all spend time together watching movies, shopping, and overall spending normal quality time. But there was one thing that made Tom uneasy. Every time the boys would come to visit, they had vitamins that they were almost fanatical about taking. 
When Tom explained to them that they didn't need the vitamins because he had discovered they were just vitamin C pills, the boys would become inconsolable, claiming that they would die without them. Mom said they had to take them. Each time the boys came to visit, the way they looked made Tom more and more worried. They were pale and skinny and just didn't act like normal kids of that age. This is when Tom decided to fight for an additional month of custody, hoping that if the boys could spend more time with him and his wife, they would be less under their mother's control. Susie was enraged by this, obviously, and vowed that he would never get the extra time. The elder, Dr. Klinner, passed away in May of 1984, and Fritz started to unravel even more. He used his entire inheritance to stock up on automatic weapons and explosives. Fritz started to feed Susie's anger at Tom, making it morph into more of a paranoia. He convinced her that Tom was going to try to kidnap the boys, saying that they needed to protect them. Susie wouldn't allow them to talk on the phone with their father, and on the rare occasions that she would let them, Fritz would actually record the phone calls to listen to later. Any gifts that Tom or his side of the family would send would be thrown away immediately because they were believed to contain poison or some other agent to kill the boys. On July 22, 1984, on one of the scheduled visits with Tom, they planned to fly the boys to Kentucky so they could visit with his side of the family. Before they had a chance to leave, Tom received a phone call with the devastating news that his mother was found shot execution style in the front yard of their home, and upon further investigation, his sister was found shot in the same way in her bedroom upstairs. Tom's family was wealthy, and nothing was taken, but with how professional the murders looked, they assumed them to be money-related. Tom was forced to send the boys back by their mother, so he flew back to Kentucky to take care of the family's things. Susie was convinced and convincing everyone that she spoke to that the murders were because of drug dealings that Tom had been doing, and it was a mob killing. When the time for the funeral arrived, he received an interesting bouquet of flowers with a really sweet letter from his former in-laws. This letter opened the door for a free flow of information about the boys and life with Susie and Fritz. Susie's parents became increasingly concerned and told Tom that if he fought for complete custody of the boys, they would testify on his behalf and support him. Fritz and Susie's personalities became more and more erratic, and in an effort to bring her back down to earth, her father sat her down and informed her if she didn't take better care of those boys that he planned to testify for Tom. As you can imagine, that did not go over well. Susie lost control, storming out of the dinner with her parents, taking her children with her. Unfortunately, the Newsoms would never have the chance to make good on that promise to Tom, for only a few days later, on May the 19th, 1985, they found Susie's parents, Bob and Florence Newsom, dead at the home of his mother, Hattie, who was also found dead in the home. All three of them were shot multiple times and had died almost instantly. When the news made its way back to Tom Lynch, the first thing he said to the police was, you need to look at Susie and Fritz. When police found out that Tom's family was killed in a similar manner, their fates were sealed. When they tried to talk to Susie about the murder, she said she had a dinner date with a friend that she had to keep and would talk to them another night, dismissing them. This seems like a perfect opportunity to take a quick pause and hear a word from our sponsors. 
So how are you listening to this podcast? Are you listening on Apple Music? Are you listening on Spotify? I bet you're listening on Stitcher. That's how I listen to podcasts. I love Stitcher. It is home to over 260,000 podcasts from classics like My Favorite Murder and Crime Junkies and Cults and Haunted Places. It's got such a wide range. It also has smart recommendations and playlists so you can find your favorite shows and organize all your current podcasts you're listening to. And it'll even learn your patterns and start picking podcasts for you. And it hasn't steered me in the wrong direction yet. Stitcher is a free app for iPhone and Android, so you can get it on both, and it's awesome. Now, if you're listening on Stitcher, do you have Stitcher Premium? Stitcher Premium has bonus episodes, exclusive shows, and ad-free listening. I have Stitcher Premium. Do you like true crime? Listen to exclusive archives from Criminology or bonus episodes from True Crime Garage, or ad-free episodes of My Favorite Murder if you're into that. You can sign up today for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 for an entire year. If you use our promo code Strange State, you will get an entire month for free to try it out. So go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use that promo code. Promo codes are unfortunately not valid on the app at the moment, but they are working to fix that. So it must be used on the website. Again, strange state. Free. Free month. Go do it now. Okay, and welcome back from those words when they're sponsors. We're going to get right back into the story. They did, however, find a young friend of Fritz's. Ian Perkins, who quickly confessed to helping him kill the Newsoms by driving the getaway car, but justified the murders to the police, claiming that they were doing work for the CIA, saying that the Newsoms were communists and they were involved in arms dealings. When presented with the facts, Ian was destroyed and immediately agreed to wear a wire to get Fritz's confession. On June the 3rd, 1985, Ian armed with a wire, climbed into Fritz's blazer to talk to him about the killings. Fritz wouldn't outright confess, but according to Greensboro.com, he did say this, I'll write a paper saying you were not knowingly involved and that you believed you were on a covert mission for the government. I've got things to do. I won't see you again. This next part is the exact account of what happened that day. I am quoting this from an article from Greensboro.com, but I believe it's important so that we don't miss any details and so we can be clear on exactly what happened. A caravan of unmarked police cars followed Fritz from Zayers, which was the parking lot him and Ian Perkins were located in. He arrived at Susie's apartment off Friendly Avenue about 2 p.m., Meanwhile, the Forsyth County District Attorney authorized Fritz's arrest based on his near confession to Perkins. Soon, law enforcement personnel, and lots of them, had the apartment surrounded from a distance. The Forsyth County Sheriff's deputies who guided Perkins on the sting were there. So were detectives from the Kentucky State Police in town to question Fritz about the lynch homicides as well. 
Agents with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation were on the ground and in the air. The Greensboro Police Department had sent a detective to serve as a liaison. All they needed was a uniformed Greensboro officer to stand by during the arrest. Tommy Dennis, a squad leader who was near the Greensboro Coliseum on Lee Street, radioed that he was on his way. He knew no details, only that he would be helping other law enforcement approach a felony suspect. Dennis headed towards Friendly Avenue as detectives remained at the apartment, watching Fritz and Susie load the blazer with what looked like camping supplies. John, Jim, and Susie's chow dog got into the back seat. With Susie in the passenger seat, Fritz headed east on Friendly Avenue. No one could have anticipated what happened next. It was a consequence of law officers from four jurisdictions working earnestly, but haphazardly, to catch a violent, unpredictable killer. Fritz approached the stretch of Friendly that intersects with New Garden and College Roads. A Greensboro detective pulled in front of the blazer. Other officers materialized and waved at Fritz to stop. An SBI agent held up his badge for Fritz to see. Fritz pulled the blazer onto the curb, drove around the police car, and continued east. Traffic continued to flow along friendly freely. Dennis and his squad car approached the blazer from the west. He flipped on his blue light, still not knowing the specifics of the operation, and tried to make a U-turn to get behind the blazer. Suddenly, two unmarked cars, one from the SBI, the other a Mustang, driven by a Forsyth County Sheriff's deputy, made U-turns behind Dennis. The Mustang passed Dennis to get to Fritz. Dennis swerved and skidded into the blazer, hitting the driver's side door. All that stood between Dennis and Fritz was the front end of a squad car. Ten feet, maybe less. Dennis looked up to see a 9 millimeter submachine gun pointed at him and Fritz smiling broadly. Fritz fired the Uzi. Five bullets hit Dennis's squad car, two hit Dennis. One struck his chest. The second grazed his belt buckle. At his wife's insistence, Dennis always wore a bulletproof vest, which today had saved his life. But the impact of the Uzi shredded the flesh on his chest and his shoulder. Dennis was conscious, but in agonizing pain. Fritz continued to fire the Uzi indiscriminately. Some of the officers shot back. Civilians and law enforcement alike ducked their heads in their vehicles as the shootout commenced. People at nearby businesses fell to the ground. One Kentucky detective took a bullet from Fritz's Uzi under his right arm. Fritz appeared boxed in by all the cars, but he managed to escape. He pulled the blazer onto New Garden Road, followed again by lots of police cars. He creeped along New Garden and then turned north onto Battleground Avenue and then onto Summerfield, slowing several times to open fire on the officers behind him. Fritz turned east on North Carolina 150. Residents heard the rat-a-tat-tat of a machine gun fire as Fritz stopped near Bronco Lane. Some clicks. Then the blazer exploded. Debris fell onto the ground in a million little pieces, obscured by plumes of white smoke. A radio call one of the officers made from his car marked the time, 3.07 p.m. Officers surveyed the area carefully, fearing they might trip other bombs. 
Most would say they had never seen anything more gruesome. Susie lay in a culvert, her lower body blown apart from the bomb that detonated beneath her. The boys were upright and the remains of the blazer's back seat, the dog sitting between them. Investigators wouldn't learn until days later that they were already dead when the bomb exploded. Poisoned with cyanide. Then they were shot in the head by their mother. Fritz survived, but just briefly. A detective from Kentucky found him breathing. He bent and turned his ear towards Fritz, hoping, hoping for a confession. Instead, Fritz gurgled blood, and then he died. Near the blazer, they found one Uzi with a shell jammed in the chamber, one pistol with shell in the chamber, two semi-automatic pistols, two shotguns, one assault rifle, bandolier straps for holding ammunition, knives, handcuffs, smoke grenades, brass knuckles, choke wires, and martial arts weapons. In the apartment they shared, they found one M6 combination rifle shotgun, one assault rifle, one 25 caliber automatic pistol, various shotguns and other pistols, knives, mace, and martial arts weapons, gas masks, bulletproof vests, a gun holster, boxes of gold and silver jewelry, pearls, $1,219 in cash, gold kurgerans, and bars of silver. In Fritz's mother's home, they found six shotguns, one machine gun, seven pistols, five semi-automatic rifles, one and a half cases of dynamite, plus black caps and 28 pounds of black powder, 35 smoke and tear grass grenades, two live remote-controlled mines. In the end, no one survived the relationship of Susie Newsom Lynch and Fritz Klinner, not even Tom, who still takes time to himself every June the 3rd. He regrets not fighting for the boys earlier, but I think we can all agree that Susie would have never let them go. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and for your continued support of the podcast. Check us out at strangedate.wordpress.com and you can also show your support on Patreon and get rewarded with some cool perks. That's going to be patreon.com backslash strangedatepod and on Instagram at strangedatepod as well. You can also send us an email at strangedatepod at gmail.com. So thank you again so much. Until next time, strangers. Strangers.